Welcome to the September 2008 episode of the Harvard Medical Labcast, science that's changing your world. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs in Boston. I'm Melissa Neller. And I'm David Cameron. This month, we'll explore the future of human genetics research. First, we'll hear from a scientist who studies the relationship between human genetic variation and disease. Then, we'll take a look at a massive DNA sequencing project that raises some interesting ethical questions. Plus, a team finds that direct-to-consumer drug advertising has only a modest effect on drug sales. But first, our colleague Ivana Riki had a chance to chat with HMS Professor of Genetics David Altshuler, who's also a founding member of the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. So your work is looking at linking genetic variations to susceptibility of common diseases like diabetes, cardiovascular disease. Um, we've known about the hereditary ability of these kinds of diseases for about over 100 years. So why is it only that we're making significant progress now when previous work on the genetic basis of common diseases has not been overly successful? For over a century, people have recognized that traits run in families. And it was also understood very early on that there are some diseases and traits that are caused by a single gene. So diseases like muscular dystrophy and Huntington's disease are diseases where there's one gene, and if you inherit a mutation in it, you'll get that disease most of the time. Cystic fibrosis, another famous example. But most diseases aren't caused by one gene. Most diseases are caused by a combination of many genes and the environment and behavior and chance. It's what we call complex inheritance. In the last few years, we see tremendous progress all of a sudden on these common diseases that had proven very difficult. And if we ask why are we seeing progress now, it's a combination of things, but probably the single event was the sequencing of the human genome. Um, How many genes are we talking here? Are we talking like a handful, hundreds? So we know that the number of genes that affect any given disease varies from one, could be if it was cystic fibrosis or Huntington's disease, all the way to all of them. We know that it's not one gene that causes diabetes. We know that because if it was one gene, it would have been found a long time ago. But also because in the last two years, 20 different genes that influence type 2 diabetes have been found. 30-some genes that influence cholesterol are known. So that tells us there are at least dozens, because we're already finding dozens, but whether it's hundreds or dozens or even more, we don't know. So this work is looking at the pathophysiology of diseases and it's helping us understand the genetic basis and how it sort of progresses and everything. Um, Is it useful as a diagnostic tool? To translate these new clues about disease into better understanding and better prevention and better treatment, that's going to take a long time. Let me give you a quick timeline of progress in genetics. It was 100 years ago that it was recognized all these diseases are inherited. In the early 1980s, a set of methods were developed to find those single gene causes of rare inherited diseases. And all of a sudden, it became possible to discover them. In fact, uh, Jim Gusella at Mass General and Harvard Medical School mapped the Huntington's disease gene in 1983. And that was the first discovery of this new approach. And within 20 years, uh, 2,000 human disease genes for rare inherited conditions were found. But progress in the common diseases really was very, very slow, almost non-existent. In 2005 or so, following the sequencing in the human genome and a set of 
projects called the HapMap Project and others to study the variation in the human genome, mm -hmm. it became possible to start looking systematically at common genetic variants for their contributions to disease. And going into 2005, there were perhaps 20 known common genetic variants that influenced any disease. Not 20 for heart attack, but 20 for all of medicine. In 2007 alone, 180 such discoveries were made. And given that technology continues to race ahead to look in an ever more detailed way, I think we will see tremendous progress in the coming years identifying genetic risk factors. One of the questions is, what can we do today? Can we do diagnostic or predictive testing? Mm. So in the last year or so, we've actually seen companies springing up that are selling direct to the consumer uh, genetic information. They will, for a fee, test your genome for these genetic variations and give you back a risk report. So one of the things that everyone has to ask themselves is, is this useful? Is it useful today? Will it be useful in the future? I think it's absolutely clear that in the future, this will be useful. Yeah. What I'd like to see is a lot of research that says, here's the standard way someone lives their life, or here's the standard way doctors uh, mm -hmm. give advice to patients, and here are some genetic tests that have been brought into the mix, and ask the question, do the people who have access to that genetic information do better than yeah. the ones who don't? And if the answer is yes, then we'll really have done something useful. But until we know that answer is yes, I guess it seems to me hubris on the part of the geneticists mm -hmm. and the uh, biotech companies who are selling this to claim that simply because we give information, we're doing benefit. We have to do better than that as a research community. We have to demonstrate benefit, not just hope for benefit. Right. I guess in the future, you could see this as a test that you do, like you test someone's blood pressure. Is this something that you envisage in the future or... Is that, you know, pie in the sky? I think that that will happen. And I think that it will be a good thing on the day that we have enough information to really give valuable, accurate, predictive information to patients. And that day is not that far off. I'm not saying it's decades off. Mm -hmm. I think that the one thing that is the same, I, I personally believe, about genetics as cholesterol or anything else is that for most people it will be not deterministic, mm -hmm. but it will be risk factors. Right. And the genetics community actually has a bit of a hard time with that because the genetics community grew up around these single gene disorders where genes are highly predictive. And geneticists often find that troubling that these risk yeah. factors are just risk factors. But as I'm trained as a physician, as a diabetes and internal medicine doctor, and my patients actually all had to deal with risk factors because we couldn't tell them whether they were going to have kidney damage from their mm -hmm. diabetes or not. It was a risk factor. We couldn't tell them if they would have a heart attack or not. Yeah. We could tell them they had high cholesterol. But having said that, I think that cholesterol is useful to people. Blood pressure is useful because following the understanding that blood pressure was a risk factor, there were drugs developed to lower blood pressure. And the same thing with cholesterol. Once it was figured out that uh, LDL cholesterol in particular was related to heart attack and stroke, drugs were developed to lower it. Right. So basically you're hoping that one day we'd be able to find some way of actually treating the changes that occur due to these genetic mutations or changes in the genome. I think that is clearly our vision, and that's clearly why we're in this business. But it's important people realize that that doesn't mean some high-tech gene therapy. It doesn't necessarily mean that the intervention will be genetic. The best example of this is a disease called phenylketonuria. There are children who were born with mental retardation, and it ran in families, 
and it was figured out many decades ago that in a small fraction of such kids, okay. it's because they can't digest this amino acid called phenylalanine. And the disease, which is called phenylketonuria, uh, results in a toxic buildup of a chemical early in life and causes brain damage and mental, what appears to be mental retardation. This insight led to the idea that maybe if you could take phenylalanine out of the diet, then the babies could avoid mental retardation. Yeah. Remarkably enough, this is true. But if you know who these children are, you can have their families feed them diets without phenylalanine. And then they will grow up with normal IQs. And note that that doesn't take fancy genetic interventions. It's not gene therapy. It's just understanding the disease and then being able to do something to prevent the bad outcome from happening. Then no one will think of it as genetics. They'll just think of it as medicine, which yeah. is what I think the future should be, is just a world with better medicine and better prevention where the genetics will play a role by mm. pointing to where we should focus. That's really, really exciting. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Thank you very much for, for talking to me today. And um, I wish you all the luck. U.S. taxpayers about $2.7 billion to sequence the first human genome. HMS professor of genetics George Church plans to sequence the protein-coding regions of 100,000 genomes at a fraction the cost. With the price tag rapidly approaching just $1,000 per person, Church is preparing to scale up his Personal Genome Project, or PGP. The Personal Genome Project is intended to be a testbed, testbed for new technologies, for sequencing, new technologies for adding value, and that requires data sharing, where people are willing to share information about their genomics, their traits, and their environments. So we're trying to get together a large resource there. Data from the PGP will be posted online so that researchers around the world can mine it for patterns, probing the connections between particular DNA sequences and traits. Church is counting on PGP participants to provide detailed information about themselves and share their data with the public. He says the project provides an exciting opportunity for individuals to advance science and medicine. In a way, they can contribute without getting a PhD or an MD uh, because they actually are experts about themselves, more expert than any scientist is, so they can basically be a, an amateur scientist the way that you have am amateur astronomers and so forth that, who actually make contributions to science. So we hope that this will really motivate people, kind of like maybe even more than NASA motivated a whole generation of kids to become rocket scientists. According to Church, this model reflects a trend in human research projects. Participants want to play an active role in the projects rather than simply serving as passive guinea pigs. But more and more people want to see their own data. They want to see what other people are seeing about them, they're curious, and we want them to be engaged at many different levels, um, ranging from fundraising to analyzing the data to telling us what their traits are. And I think that requires a new model of, of sharing the data back to them and making sure they know when it's safe to share it with researchers and other people. Church knew from the outset that this project raised ethical questions. Philosopher and bioethicist Jean-Tine Lonchoff 
helped him develop a protocol that protected participants and passed muster with Harvard University's Institutional Review Board, which oversees research involving humans. Usually in consent for research, there is the assurance from the part of the researchers that everything will be kept in strict confidentiality and absolutely anonymous. And well, to us it was obvious from the beginning that that's a promise you cannot make. A genome is essentially a six billion letter social security number, according to Jason Bogue, director of community for the Personal Genome Project. It's fairly easy to link a genome back to a particular person. Instead of promising anonymity, the team moved to a model of open consent. So being clear that, one, we're not going to promise privacy and anonymity, and two, what are the implications of that? What are the things that, as a participant, if you're interested, these are the types of risks that we perceive as being possibilities for you? And some are remote, some are less remote. When we first proposed this to the Harvard IRB, they requested that the PGP-10, the first 10 participants, have a master's level degree in genetics or equivalent training. And it was actually CV-based. The IRB reviewed the CVs to, to see that these individuals had enough genetic expertise that they could really make an informed decision about participating. We then evolved the model to include an interest exam, which we can empirically test and people can train for. You don't have to actually go back to college and get a degree in order to participate. You can actually just demonstrate that you have a sufficient level of genetic literacy to participate. On April 15, 2008, we got IRB approval to scale the project to 100,000 people. The initial 10 participants are paving the way for the next group of volunteers. Most, if not all, of the PGP-10 will release their genomes to the public on October 20th, testing the waters before additional folks agree to have their genomes sequenced. Harvard Medical School's Chief Information Officer, John Halamka, explains why he agreed to be one of the PGP-10. For me, you know, I have accepted the fact that being a scientist, being involved in electronic health records and standards and genes, etc., I am willing to be an early test subject in the interest of protecting others in the future. I think George was the first entry into this, and I was the second, so it was you know, clearly very early on that we had to think of questions such as, if you're going to publicly disclose your genome, will you have discrimination for employment purposes or be a pariah in society? Now, of course, back when I signed up for PGP, we didn't have the Genetic Non-Discrimination Act, so back then, you know, this was a leap of faith in some ways. Ultimately, the PGP and related projects may help individuals assess disease risk. If there's a cohort of a large number of us doing this, then there will be the data to discover these associations. More and more over time, you know, we'll discover, oh gee, yeah, we could have predicted that you would have had this or that event based on this particular sequence that you have. And all of this is going to be an understanding of probability and personal choice and how do you take sophisticated statistical concepts and communicate them to any audience? I just imagine there will be a period of education, but most importantly, ways of communicating this information so it's more meaningful to a patient. In the short term, the PGP is unlikely to yield medical benefits for participants. But volunteers will have the satisfaction of knowing that they're contributing to science and medicine. If you are interested in learning more about the PGP or becoming a participant, visit www.personalgenomes.org.
You've seen them. Everything from those sexy erectile dysfunction ads to kids rolling around on the grass while Claritin, no more allergies, flashes across the screen. Welcome to the world of direct-to-consumer drug advertising. Over the last 10 years, drug companies have spent billions of dollars on ads like these. But how big a bang are they getting for such big bucks? Professor Stephen Sumerai at Harvard Medical School, along with graduate student Michael Law, decided to answer that question. To do so, the team needed to find two groups of consumers identical in every way except one, their exposure to such ads. But where could one possibly find two such groups? The answer, Canada. While direct-to-consumer advertising is illegal in Canada, American media makes its way over the border and into every Canadian's living room. Well, almost every Canadian. Residents of French-speaking Quebec receive about 80% of their news from French-language media, so they have little direct exposure to the ads. When the researchers compared prescriptions for advertised drugs in English-speaking Canada to French-speaking Canada, they were surprised. And what we found, in fact, was in two out of three cases, there was no observable effect of the direct-to-consumer ads under those very strong controlled study conditions. The way I see it is advertisements predispose to change. But what we're finding in this study is that the ads by themselves are not sufficient to actually cause the change. You need much stronger interventions. So it seems then that if Big Pharma wants a better return on investment, they might want to bypass the consumer. This concludes the September episode. And remember, your genes are only part of your story. If you want to stay healthy, there's never been and probably never will be a substitute for good old diet and exercise. This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Public Affairs, and we'd love to hear your comments on this program. Visit our podcast website at podcast.hms.harvard.edu and tell us what you think or read what other listeners are saying. Music for this episode was arranged by our colleague, John Ryan. In order to learn more about Harvard Medical School, our academic and research programs, and our affiliated hospitals and research institutes, visit the Harvard Medicine website at hms.harvard.edu.